shut up in my bones for my grandmother Harriet Beecher Sproul Hill. I have the racket of anxiety in my genes. It rivets in ink. Spite this, I leave these marks, this evidence of us undone. In wit's end, it all ferments, and we shape totems of shame from our amusements. The musk of my imagination is as redolent as any untamed woman, and likewise mistaken for mental illness. That was today's guest, Damaris Hill, the author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. And today is part two of our discussion about her book and her advocacy for women of color. Stay tuned. into relationships and you hosted by toby jenkins a licensed marriage and family therapist serving central kentucky each week toby will bring you a show with a topic related to mental health relationships or self-improvement the name of the show paradigm comes from that moment in the therapy process when a profound shift in perspective happens for a client an epiphany sometimes accompanied by physical reaction that leads them to look at things differently and make significant steps towards improving and enriching their lives. And we are back. You are listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. Today, uh, my guest is Damaris Hill. And before the break, uh, we're talking about her most recent book of poetry, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. And so we were talking about some of the historical uh, figures, uh, women of color, that you have uh, written poems about in this book. And so one that stuck out to me from a, uh, from a contemporary standpoint was Sandra Bland. And so for background, uh, Sandra Bland, um, well, you could probably tell Sandra Bland's story better than I could, but essentially um, she was starting a new job from at Prairie View, Prairie View A&M, was stopped leaving campus by a white police officer. Um, and from my, what I recall of the story, uh, he was pursuing someone else and she was trying to get out of the way but he stopped her instead. They had a, an altercation during the stop. Um, and I've heard a lot of stuff about it um, where one, he had no, well, the stop went awry without getting a, in a whole lot of uh, detail about it. Um, as is the case with many of these kind of stop, police stops of uh, people of color where um, it goes sideways and the outcomes end up not being uh, very good for, uh, as we think of like Orlando Castile, that one was caught on video uh, two years ago, three years ago, um, and others. But um, Sandra Bland in particular um, ended up uh, dead a couple days later in her prison cell. So that's a brief story about her. And so um, what was your, what was the inspiration of including her in this book of poetry for you? Um, well, uh, for one, the proximity, I would think, in age. For two, um, the HBCU connection. Um, a lot of people that have not attended historically Black colleges and universities, um, the sense of pride and empowerment that comes with that experience is not strictly... Um, a pedagogical approach where you learn excessively about Black culture and Black history, but how I explain to others is oftentimes for the first time ever, particularly in a uh, marginalized or African-American child's life, that they've ever been educated under the auspice of love, mm, not yeah. under the auspice of penalty. Mm -hmm. And that makes 
all the difference um, in the in the nurturing in the cultivation of the mind to know that you are um, learning under the umbrella of love and not under the umbrella of punitive learning or penalty learning. And um, I think in that way, that area in Texas, although very culturally complex and threatening and oppressive for many, might have been an oasis of love or nostalgically remembered as an oasis of love. So uh, Sandra Bland would have not been in her car. She would have not even been looking for a person like Insinia to show up. Mm -hmm. She just left a place where she was nurtured for four out of five years to get a degree being offered a job in that space to return to that nurturing space and have an opportunity to nurture and cultivate others in a system of love. So to be biasly targeted and stopped um, and then to be um, spoken to and um, ordered around and assaulted as if one, you committed a crime, but two, as if you could not interpret the, the language or have a, a conversation about whatever was the perceived wrong. There wasn't even an opportunity for human discussion or contact. Um, so that bothered me, but also the fact that um, what I loved initially about, well, what I love about Sandra Bland's spirit is that like many black women, right? So Angela Davis, Asada Shakur, these are women that have a exuberant faith in the idea of democracy and the principles of America. Mm. You have to have a type of religious faith and fervor in these things in order to hold the United States accountable. Because if you don't believe they're possible, you wouldn't hold the United States accountable for them. True. Very true. And you know, if you the, thought they were mythology, you would act accordingly. You don't see anybody walking around uh, demanding that Cinderella show up. <laughs> no, you don't. And it's so often that uh, women, the role that women of color have played in uh, um, social justice, the civil rights movement gets really overlooked. And I, I don't think it's been within the last couple of years that we've really uh, talked about the contribution, not only the contribution of women during the civil rights movement in the 60s and how limited their role was, but um, the role would not have succeeded without them. The, the, the movement wouldn't have succeeded right. without them. We talk about Martin Luther King a lot, and I'm not taking anything away from Dr. King, but we don't talk enough about Ella Baker, who had 70 years in a game. 70 yeah. years in a freedom game. Yeah. 70 years in a freedom game. Yeah. You know, that's, that's like two lifetimes. If it was yeah. prison sentences, it would be three. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I, I was listening to, um, you know, I'm going to, sorry to bounce around, but you can listen to the um, Sandra Bland's recording of that uh, stop. Um, and I think you can also find the, uh, the, desk, the uh, dash cam recording of that stop and how that conversation went between the two of them. But um, I can't remember where I, where I heard this, but um, there was a, going back to Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, um, women were kind of, women were put in these traditional roles um, during the movement and not really outside of uh, Rosa Parks. Um, she's about the only one you hear about. Her role is minimalized. Mm -hmm. so it's not put in these traditional roles. It's the invisibility of their, um, their strategic engagement. Yes. Um, and a lot of these women that you write about made significant contributions to movements of freedom, and you don't you don't hear about them very much. Um, the story in particular that I heard recently was around um, 
Martin Luther King's uh, meeting with John F. Kennedy. And it wasn't publicized very much then, but Coretta Scott King wanted to go too. And they basically said, I'm going to paraphrase, sent her away so that the men could meet, so to speak. Um, And that's the kind of thing during the movement and how women uh, were, were kind of put on the, uh, on the back burner and not, uh, and yeah. And the parts that they did, that they were, that they did serve during that period. Um, sure. They, they cooked food, they did logistics. They did all the things that women quote unquote, um, typically do. But this book that you put together, um, really shows, uh, the trailblazing of women of color. And, you know, I can't, um, I can't understate, and I, I have a daughter myself, and we fight constantly. I don't maybe fight is not uh, the right way to put it, but we've made a strategic um, decision a long, long time ago to not put limits on who she can be based on her her biological sex, and so um, and that would be that would make me the proudest to see her trailblaze like a lot of these women that you have, uh, you've, you've written about. Um, and by the way, while we mentioned that you also do work with, uh, with young girls with, uh, with art. Um, can you tell us more about that work and, um, why you do it and uh, how it works? Okay. Um, so there are a lot of ideas here. One of the (laughs) ideas that I want to take us back to is the, um, talking about black women in the long civil rights movement. Um, we, we, we talked about the, the, the roles that you talked about, like uh, pairing and taking care and uh, cooking and some strategic, but I think what's often overlooked in the civil rights movement is the power and the intersections of black women and technology. There mm-hmm. is nothing stronger on the planet than the telephone tree. When those black women get together and get that telephone tree together, within 30 minutes, everybody will know everything. And they, and you know, it's, it's, it's such a, like a democratic progressive effort. Cause it's like, each of us are going to call three to 10 women on our list and make sure that they know what, what, what strategy is next or what has happened. Mm-hmm. And literally, in like less than two hours, you may have five hundred women ready to mobilize. Yeah, very much so. And <laughs> to advance, yeah, the needs of social reform. Right. That's an incredible technology. It is. That's an incredible technology. <laughs> it definitely is, and the movement and doesn't move without it. <laughs> and the movement does not move without it, right? Yeah. And so um, we we often ignore the contributions of um, Black women um, in the fields of technology and the intersections with democracy and technology. And so I'm just the kind of professional and the kind of person and this might be a little bit old school. I don't know what this is motivated by, but if you have a space where you think black women are not supposed to be, I'm gonna always show up. <laughs> and tell you, who's here before me? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a jump in like it's double dutch, and then I'm gonna start a roll call. <laughs> like that's just a part of who I am, and as an extension of that. The, the giggle, the giggles, guts, and glitter camp happened, which was teaching um, girls in between the ages of 11 and 16 not only the art making skills, but um, how to use digital tools to communicate democracy in a 21st century world. Mm-hmm. Wow, this program sounds amazing. Uh, We're up against a commercial break, and when we come back, let's jump back into it. Um, You're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships, and you. We'll be right back after this break. 
This is Toby Jenkins, founder of Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy is a proud sponsor and supporter of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. At Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy, we work with couples, families, and individuals walking with you through life's challenges and transitions. You can find out more about Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and request an appointment through telehealth or in person at www.jenkinscft.com or by calling 859-806-0093. And we are back. You're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. And um, today, my guest is Damaris B. Hill. She is the author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. It's a book of poetry um, inspired by uh, many women of color um, who have done, um, who've taken up various causes for freedom and humanity. And so before the break, um, uh, we were talking about um, the role Black women played. Uh, it, this may sound cruel to, wait, to say it this way, but, but women were, during the Civil Rights Movement, many were subjugated to uh, stereotypical uh, roles that women do, cooking, phone tree, what uh, Damaris brought up. Um, but, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that I've had a couple of authors uh, on my show and um, many of them, several of them have used their, their, their art, novel writing or storytelling to influence the next generation. And so, you have picked up that cause too with uh, girls of color in particular. So uh, tell us more about uh, Giggles, Guts, and Glory. Okay. Uh, Giggles, Guts, and uh, Glitter, um, which is uh, a girls camp that uh, surrounds art making, technology, and democracy. And what I wanted um, for the girls is for them to get very comfortable and accustomed to uh, understanding what's important to them and then also articulating what is important to them. Not only in spaces that are nurturing, but in, 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 a, um, in a more democratic discourse, right? Because often uh, girls are taught to be quiet, or some girls, even even adults, um, adult women in professional instances are uh, encouraged to have others uh, champion their concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That usually doesn't work out best No. for them. Um, so it's important to me that um, girls learn how to um, use their voices and say what they want and need as early as possible. That gets on to one of my other soapboxes around how we socialize women to be in support of men typically. So Mm -hmm. this is really incredible that you are engaging girls at this age to think about advocacy and developing their own voice. Because when you said democracy, I was thinking how in the world do you get girls at that age to think about democracy and why is that important to them? Right. But it's very important because we want them to enter the political process as stakeholders with expectations, Mm -hmm. not just in a service capacity um, to meet a greater consensus. Right. No. Yeah. No, no. Consensus is cool after I get my equity. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't talk to me about diversity. Talk to me about equity. Yeah. That's that's the term that I most closely associate with democracy. So if you ever hear me using democracy, I'm talking about equity. I'm not talking about diversity. I'm not just talking about a voice. I'm talking about equity. Buy-in. Right. And so using art, whether it be like painting, sculpting, writing, you're engaging these young girls in these thoughts of equity early. And when you said that, you know, I've done a a good number, uh, a fair bit of work with uh, kids at that age, and it has never crossed my mind. Well, we talk about those things, but um, very few are thinking about it. 
And so uh, strategically, um, like if you came in and said, we're going to talk about democracy, I'm sure their eyes would roll and they would think, what does it have to do with me? So I'm very curious, like, how do you link um, what they are doing through their creative work with these concepts of freedom and democracy? Well, I, I, I use literature primarily, and um, I tried to focus on Black women writers that write about their, their childhood and their girlhood. And we talk about how these characters negotiate power in the stories. Mm. And then we talk about what power they may have. So one of the exercises was for them to think about their neighborhood and their town and their community. And they had to identify every place that belonged to them by name and wow. why. And wow. why, why does this belong to you? So that if someone else tried to um, pioneer that space, mm -hmm. whether it is their body, a space of safety, let's say uh, most, uh, maybe it's their, it's their kitchen space. And that is their space where they're free to be themselves and creative. And if somebody tried to pioneer that space or take over that space, that they would have the language to say that this is my space, this belongs to me, this is why I may be willing to share with you, but I'm not willing to retreat from this space that belongs to me, which is also a very important conversation in terms of advocacy mm -hmm. and citizenship and allyship in the space of gentrification. Mm, yeah. You know, when you mentioned that, the other thought that crossed my mind from a therapy standpoint uh, are the number of women that uh, through the process of therapy who have shared some type of history of sexual assault and abuse mm -hmm. and not feeling that power whenever they were abused to be able to, um, I'm not going to say stop it, but to feel like they could do something else with it. Besides advocate for themselves, right? Yeah. Right. Like that's, that's, one of one of the um when I have to talk about these issues with other writers if they're trying you know sometimes it comes up when we're trying to figure out the words to add to experience like one of the evidences of trauma is that language sometimes is inadequate yeah very true yep and so when you talk about why didn't a victim of sexual assault uh, advocate for themselves in the moment or after the moment that one of the symptoms of a disease that is traumatic, one of the symptoms of trauma to the body and the psyche is the inability to access language. That is a symptom. That mm -hmm. is an, an effect mm -hmm. and an affect of the experience. So I I mean, in, in my dream world, right, in my hope world, that the, the more pathways and schemas and devices we use to cultivate advocacy, that hopefully um, for the self, that maybe it will become an automatic response like breathing, right. but you have to cultivate that. Yeah. Because as a, as a nation, we still... And, uh, well, I have to say beyond a nation, um, we, we have a problem with um, sexual assault violating the bodies of, of girls and women. Um, statistically, one in three women will be assaulted in their lifetime. I think it's one in Those are the women seven. that tell. Those what? are the women that tell. Those are the women that tell you they've been assaulted. Well, yeah. So the, yep, that too. Um, so empowering girls to... Um, advocate um, is very, very powerful in any way or method that it can be done. And we don't do enough of that um, culturally. And um, so no, that's, that's we really. Also, we also don't warn boys that they can also be victims of these things too. Yes. <laughs> Another good point. So, like in the culture, right? We are, the culture is cultivated to exploit women and girls but it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen to boys too. And so 
Um, I'm very much an advocate of um, teaching children how to access power, mm -hmm. even if it annoys you, even yep. at your own inconvenience, um, because it becomes a lifestyle of being able to, to articulate what they want and need and strategically think about how to get it. Yeah. And how to how to how to ascertain allies to have those things too. Yeah, because that is so often missing um, when these kind of things happen. You know, you bring up boys too. Um, just from the the research, boys are less likely to tell because mm -hmm. of all of, all of the shame associated with being violated in that way in masculinity. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and you can, you see it in the news, um, um, like, uh, just last week, um, there was an athlete at, uh, Michigan, uh, and he's, I mean, he's, in, I think he's in his fifties now, but, um, he was assaulted for several years while he was a wrestler and athlete and, um, hadn't said a word to anybody, um, as a wrestler. I mean, that's gotta be one of the most, um, macho, uh, masculine endeavors that you can get into, but yet in, in this sport, these sports, uh, that are highly masculine have a, have a dirty history of this, just illustrating how a, a lot of boys, um, boys and young men, um, are even less likely to tell when they've been violated. Well, we're up against another break and, um, when we come back, um, we're going to jump into, uh, you've got a section of uh, poems in your book dedicated to being a, a mother. And so, um, you know, that's one thing that I don't know for sure. I'm pretty sure, I, well, I don't know for sure, but I know many of these women that you've written about and many women who have uh, taken up the cause of social justice and democracy are mothers. And so uh, I don't think we can talk enough about that, but um, we'll jump into that when we come back listening to paradigm insights into relationships and you we'll be right you've back got mail break. you've got mail uh today's list of the mail comes from cw777 he writes um a young black man from atlanta that i've mentored since he was 14 he's now 40 um now i'm assuming this is from a white gentleman uh reached out to me last night seeking to make sense of the recent events in minnesota i know from our past together he, is a, he has had negative interactions with the police during his lifetime. I believe that the events in Minnesota have dredged up a lot of bad memories and trauma for him. I can call what, what happened what it is, which is evil, but I'm not quite sure how to help him process what he is feeling because I've never had to walk in his shoes as a white man. So um, <laughs> what would you tell CWW um, in terms of how to help his friend? I would start by telling CWW that um, the mentee probably did not phone for advice, but phoned him out of a sense of um, needing, needing multiple things to happen, needing affirmation of mutual acceptance and respect in the relationship, um, needing to know the boundaries around equity or the solid bridge of connection that they have that extends beyond race. Mm. Because at a time when um, a person or Black people in particular in this time and space are being faced with a number of challenges that are polarizing Blacks against whites, it really puts a lot of strain on the friendships across race. Hmm. And I think what the mentee was looking for was trying to establish how strong the bond and friendship is. And if the bond and friendship had boundaries, where they existed. And so I think what uh, the mentee is asking, I think it was CW777. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, I, think, I think the mentee is asking CW777 not only to recognize the Black 
young mentee's complex humanity. But that was kind of a check-in to figure out where CW777's humanity existed. Mm, yeah. Was CW77's ability to recognize the mentee's full human life inhibited by any privilege that he may have or power that he may have as being both male and white in America. I think that was the check-in. It wasn't really about how to tell the black dude how to be well. It was the black mentee checking in to say, yo, do you have my back? And in the terms of Rihanna at the last NAACP (laughs) Awards, are you my white friend that is going to pull up and be an advocate and (laughs) ally that my life matters? Or are you going to be a bystander? And the mentee might have been trying to draw the line in the sand at that point, because maybe the mental health and the mental safety of the mentee does not have space for bystander relationships right now. Mm. Very true. I, um, um, I, I have to admit that I have not been completely okay in the last couple of uh, weeks with everything going on either. And I've had unique opportunities over the last week or so to engage in conversation with white men in particular. And so um, while the things that are going on are um, just soul sucking for me, um, especially being a parent, um, I'm encouraged that these conversations are happening because of how they're being publicized, where in years past, these things happened and no one ever talked about it. So I would I would echo everything you said um, that being an ally and knowing how to be an ally would be very, very important and not in to validate your mentee's experience, the trauma, the, uh, the uh, dread, the anxiety that this produces. Um, it's, it's not every day that uh, I don't think we are, we, we should be seeing these images as often as we are seeing them but they, they resonate in particular with men of color, seeing other men of color being violently assaulted um, and killed um, on your screens, whether it be a television screen or a phone. So, um, so yeah, I, I would agree that that was a check-in to, to uh, basically ask you to be an ally. And being an ally starts with validating that experience, acknowledging that your experience has been different, but... Um, showing up and uh, being there for your mentee so uh cww777 i hope uh our advice uh and our input has helped you and uh, uh and for everyone else um this is a time to uh to not be a bystander so into relationships in you, and this is Woman Insight. I want to talk a little bit about trauma and being triggered by trauma. For many of us, seeing images of people being killed on television is traumatizing. I knew I was experiencing trauma because I couldn't watch it. I looked away. I couldn't watch the Ahmaud Arbery uh, video either. And so here's some signs to know if you've been triggered or experiencing PTSD from seeing this trauma on whatever screen you experience it on. If you don't feel safe in places you usually feel safe, that's one sign. Intrusive thoughts that you can't control, whether it be images of the the trauma itself. Hypervigilance, where you'd normally be relaxed. Not being able to trust your feelings. Emotional exhaustion. Uh, having trouble sleeping, or if your eating patterns have changed. So these are not all the signs of trauma or PTSD, but some of them. And if you're experiencing them, it's a good time to go talk to someone or get some help. This is Toby Jenkins, host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. One of the biggest stresses that we encounter is money. Money issues strain our family life, create stress in our relationships, it can provoke serious anxiety and depression, and many don't know where to turn to get relief. That's where the Darius Norman Show comes in. 
The Darius Norman Show airs daily on WTTA-FM 101.2 from 1 to 2 p.m. Darius Norman is a certified credit and financial counselor and author of Rewriting Financial Rules. It's his objective to empower others with educational tools and services to assist them in taking control of their financial and credit issues. Tune in to The Darius Norman Show on WTTA-FM 101.2 and you can follow him on Twitter at The Darius Norman Show. Uh, we're back. You're listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. Um, I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. Today, my guest is Damaris Hill, and um, we are talking about uh, her book of poetry, A Bound Woman, Woman is a Dangerous Thing. Um, you know, before the break, um, we're talking about the role that many of these uh, women of color had, which was being a mother. And you have uh, written a few poems. Uh, in the back section of your book dedicated to uh, being a mother, because you're a mother yourself. So I'm going to read one in particular, and then, um, you know, we'll just kind of talk through um, the importance and influence of being a mother, not only on you, but some of these women that you've written about. This is Praying for Sons. It is never as easy as some believe, praying, I have but one son. God answers, as did the father Abraham, and what of me? I gave my only son for love. Cupping my insolence into words, I asked God if her son's face was beautiful, something star-blended and bright as Lucifer. I asked her, were there diamonds in his eyes? Did the rest of him glisten like cobalt beneath a curtain of night? She answers, every son is a star he chooses. Some sons choose to be men hatched from womb, wanting the world and all its lust. Other sons want the heavens. Envy swells in their veins. Jealousy pools in their mouths. It throbs in them. They will throw their crowns into the clouds. They aim to collect your son. Now that's okay. son, S-U-N, not S-O-N at the end there. That's, um, wow, that's, 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 a, that's pretty cool. Um, I think I was trying to explore there some of the, um, for a lack of a better term, anguish and um, mental trauma that one experiences trying to become a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, that oftentimes the emotional aspects of humanity have to be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that breeds consciously or, so, or subconsciously, just like often feminists talk about their want for um, social power and currency that men have. I think men also have a want for the emotional access and fluidity that women so openly express. Wow. And so from that standpoint, being a mother provides tremendous motivation for these women to do um, these sometimes illegal, sometimes uh, I didn't want you, I think you said earlier, you want to stop using the word radical, but a lot of these women were radical. And consider radical. What is, uh, what is (laughs) radical love? You either love or you don't love. You either believe in democracy or you don't. Is there, some type of gradient for love I, that that's that's an impossible for me to conceive of like isn't like in the middle somewhere like, like has nothing to do with love <laughs> <laughs> like like is is a polite tolerance that might um that might be l- less torture you know yes. but love there, there's we talk about love as if it's all pleasure. Anybody that is a parent or that is in a relationship of any kind, when any two individuals have to form one bond, it is not always pleasurable. That's true. As much as I enjoy being a mother, I love being a mother. It is the one of one of the it's one of the most painful things me because um, I I constantly want to prevent 
my son from having the human experience of suffering. And that is impossible. So how old is your son? My son is 26 years old and I still have these pains. It, that's amazing. Wanting, yeah. <laughs> of wanting to protect him from suffering. Like I don't even want him to suffer. Yeah. Even though it's a part of the human experience, it's a part of maturing. Yes. If I can do anything to prevent him from suffering, you would still do it. I would try at least. So, like I have to work against it. And, um, you know, a lot of those poems discuss my, my son's battles with addiction. And, and thank God for spaces like Al-Anon that gave me some strategies of trying to help him as he um, matures towards sobriety. Yeah. Because I, I may have in, inappropriately enabled him in so many ways because I don't like to see my son suffer. No, you know, I, I, um, I'm, I'm a little, I straddle, well, I'll put it this way. When I interface with fathers, especially new dads, they all kind of, uh, lament that there is something that they're not experiencing that the mother of their child is experiencing. And I'm not so sure about that. And I hear that all the time. Um, and now a kind of a, a goofy, a goofy admission is that um, I'm a Maury Povich fan. That's my, that's my, that's my getaway. And you hear it all the time. Like I didn't bond with that baby. Um, but I say all that, that because um, until I became a parent myself, I fully did not appreciate the sacrifice and just the anguish that my own mother and my father, I would say to a lesser degree, because he's, he's a little more stoic, but, um, you know, my mother essentially would, would not eat in order to feed us. And I didn't get it until I had kids of my own. And I can only imagine, now, you know, I'm 47. And if I go visit and I drive home, she still wants me to call her when I get home. I'm like, you know, I'm a grown man, but it's that she's always, always my mom. <laughs> I'm always the baby still at 47. And so um, it's. Um, and I want to say that I really want my son to be a man. I really want him to mature. And yeah. so we've had conversations. I had my son on my 20th birthday. And so we've had conversations where he says, I can't imagine managing two lives at this point in my life. And I'm just like, uh, you would do it. Um, but I, I want to also say about your dad, even if your dad was more stoic and reserved, the emotional wound could actually be greater because he doesn't know how to manage it True. in terms of love. And I think a lot of times in relationships, not my own, but maybe, um, when, when people do not know how to access their emotional self mm -hmm. in a way that can recognize they they see the emotional self as as an enemy mm -hmm. and um the only way that they choose to engage with that 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 new emotion is anger yeah don't get me started on that with men <laughs> <laughs> you know there there's some interesting uh i i was reading a study or or listening to uh uh i can't remember which show it was but we start socializing babies that way early that it's okay for baby boys to express anger, but then we encourage yeah. baby girls to express the full uh, range of emotion. And it just, and now I see it shows up in therapy. I, I had this discussion, this very discussion just yesterday with a client um, working on marital issues. And um, we talked about, well, what were the emotions you could express as a child? Anger, happiness. That was it. <laughs> there was no room for vulnerability, no room for any of that stuff. And it follows us men into fatherhood, relationships, et cetera. Yeah, that's a soapbox of mine that I get on quite a well, bit. Well, maybe that's also what I'm trying to get to in terms of praying for sons. Like the, the remorse of that, right? The remorse of denying the human self in order to exemplify a false uh, social hierarchy of masculinity. 
Mm, well stated. Like I, I agree. More... Very well stated. Um, but there are a number of poems dedicated to motherhood, and they're all um, they all touch a different part of motherhood. And like you said earlier, um, um, we can't really protect our kids from a lot of that. But man, if I could, I would. Um, and I'm sure my parents would still do the same thing now, even though I'm a grown man with my own family. Um, well, we're up against another commercial break. Um, we're talking to author, poet, artist, uh, social justice, democracy advocate. I don't know. There are a bunch of other labels I could uh, put in here. But we're talking about uh, her book of poetry, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. Uh, we'll be right back after this break. Do you want to help positively transform schools? Then let me, Joel Cotty, keynote speaker and facilitator of the professional learning, Ignite, hashtag love in schools, put deep passion, purpose, and joy back into your classrooms, hallways, and school events. Share my contact information with a principal or district leader near you. My phone number is 859-967-8510 and find me on Twitter and Facebook at Ignite Love PD. Uh, we're back. You're listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships in You. Uh, today, my guest is Damaris Hill, and uh, we're talking about her book of poetry, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. Um, you... Um, You've had an interesting medical history that's also kind of wrapped up in this as well. And so um, I actually heard you talk about some of this at a discussion you gave for uh, medical students. And I thought the way you, you positioned it was um, um, very palatable. But in essence, you've had a long battle not understanding with some health issues, not understanding and trying to get to the bottom of it. So, um, yeah, let's, let's talk about how bias in the medical profession, um, led to this long, long, uh, battle to find out what, what was going on with you. Yeah. Um, so I was the type of child that, um, had frequent uh, visits to the emergency room about three times a year. Um, it could be it could be um, symptomatized by um, you know the adventurous way that I ate. So I was you know like a little kid that would try like sushi or uh, exotic foods. And, you know, at that time we would pass it off as like a food didn't agree with me. Um, because of the way that medicine is compartmentalized and financed and um, researched in the United States on the basis of race, which is a uh, biological mythology. Um, yes. Many, many of my medical problems remained unresolved. Um, and so a part of that is um, I, I have celiac disease. I am allergic to wheat, protein, gluten. Um, and that went undiagnosed in my life for 40 years, despite the fact that you all say of my life. four years? 40. 40 years. Wow. 40 years, despite the fact that all of the symptoms were present all of my life. Um, I wasn't even tested. Now, for, um, celiacs, what yeah. is it? It is when a body is allergic to wheat proteins and gluten. It is historically believed to uh, be present in bodies that are of Irish descent, Scottish descent, or Celtic descent, which is one of the reasons that it has its name. But because my skin does not resemble whiteness mm -hmm. or Irish skin in, in, its, in its complexion, um, the medical community at one point did not suspect 
uh, African Americans to have this type of disease, even though African Americans and Africans have been in this country together. I'm sorry, Africans and Irish and Scottish and Celtic peoples have been in this country together, often working side by side in some level of indentured servitude, sure. building families together uh, permissively or via violence. Uh -huh. um, that uh, this mythology of, of separate ethnicities and races and their exclusive biological diseases does not exist in a new world body. Right. A new world body has, has two continents present, at least two continents present, mm -hmm. right? If we take into account the British Empire, we, we, we might have about five or six continents present. Sure. Um, and um, so, um, it took until I became violently ill and moved to a place such as Lexington, Kentucky, where I was even more so allergic to horses. Horses? Yes. So this is the horse capital of the world. I'm so allergic to horses that my first cousin is allergic to horses. My father is allergic to horses. Like this is a real biological condition Wow. for the hills of North Carolina. We don't do good with 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 agricultural dander. Yeah. Okay. So it's dander, similar to someone might have an allergy to cat or dog dander. So it's like the dander. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it's it's extreme. So I can I know that there's a horse, then about fifty feet of me, because my tongue will itch way before. Mm. It. Wow. And so you know, going back to celiacs. Um, um, we've known a couple of people with it. Um, you, you talked a little bit about some of the symptoms. Some of the symptoms I've seen are severe GI issues, uh, to mm -hmm. the point where you can't keep food down or keep food in, um, mm -hmm. migraines. I had these GI issues as a child. Yeah. Um, and not knowing or assuming, and then just right. be just making your, yourself sick over and over and over again. Um, high temperature is another one I've seen, um, to the point foggy of, brain. yep, foggy brains, another one. Um, and those Migraine. migraines, yep. Um, we, we have some friends with, uh, a child around our, our kid's age and, um, we can go out, but she's going to bring her kids food because even in the best of circumstances at a restaurant, you can't guarantee that there's no like cross contamination or sprinkling of certain spices. So you have to be very, very, very careful with it. Um, mm -hmm. And so those restaurants that are like gluten-free or, um, or cater to that are really, really nice. Yeah. Um, but going back to the larger issue that you brought up though, was that it wasn't in, it wasn't in the realm of possibility because you're an African American woman, mm -hmm. and so you had to really fight to be tested. Otherwise, yeah. you would still be suffering. I had to fight to be tested. I would otherwise be suffering, and even when I um, I, I would have severe sinus and allergy conditions. Mm -hmm. um, also, another aspect of American medicine is is uh, relieving the symptom. So I was yeah. overprescribed antihistamines and sinus decongestants, which actually do not relieve um, the congestion in your head in a healthy way. What they do is they reduce the amount of blood flow to your head. Oh, so wow. the entire time. Oof that I was obtaining a PhD, I, I was on the maximum amount of decongestants a day. Wow. Which means that, um, that I was getting probably a third less blood flow than, than, than I was probably allowed it in, in my brain and suffering brain fog and all of this other stuff. Yep. So, the one benefit to finding out I had celiac later in life 
is that I got to be smarter quicker. Mm, yeah. You know, I, I don't, um, I, I mean, linking this back to mental health, um, mm-hmm. it's all interconnected. Um, it is. And I make that case quite a bit. And there's a growing field of uh, nutritional psychology, but um, all of it's related. And we need to start looking at our health that way. Um, nutrition, physical health, mental health, it's all in there. Um, it sounds like you went through a lot. Yeah. And also the, the wheat belly and the body bloating, right? Mm-hmm. The cloudy brain, the body, the body bloating, and how that even affects your self-esteem, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and your self-perception of what healthy is. Yep. So I was a vegetarian for 13 years while I had a gluten allergy and didn't know. Yeah. I can still copious amounts of wheat protein. Yeah. I'm laughing with you because (laughs) I've, I've had a similar kind of, and I can't say from an ill, well, yeah, from an illness standpoint, from being um, diagnosed with diabetic. And this is something I talk about every now and then on the show too. um, And not understanding fully how my nutrition was, was um, adding to my bad glucose control in particular when I went vegan, Mm-hmm. Same kind of experience. When I went vegan, I thought, man, this is going to be awesome. My blood sugar was way out of control. And it was all of the the carbs and, and wheat and all that good stuff. But um, um, and, and whole wheat is probably even more detrimental for you as a diabetic because of the amount of sugar still left in there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Quite amazing. So um, it's that, that's quite a story. And I'm, I'm glad you found a solution not just continued treatment of symptoms, which um, also I'm not a big fan of either. Um, well, Damaris, we've, uh, this has uh, flown by and I am not a reader, but I have read a good bit of this and will read the rest of it and it's riveting. Um, I, uh, I can't say more Everybody about- pick up a copy of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing? Well, that's what I was about to say. Where can people find your book? They can find, um, the easiest place to find my book is on Amazon, but it should be available at your local bookstore, um, independently owned, and at your um, larger retailers such as Barnes and Nobles. And, um, you know, I, I, in preparing to, to have you on the show today, I, I, I just kind of Googled you and um, you have a website. And then there are other, uh, other uh, video and audio of you reading poetry. So just, just for those, uh, where, what's the name of your website? Or how, people, how can people find you? www.damarishill.com, D-A-M-A-R-I-S-H-I-L-L.com. I'm also available on Twitter, at Damaris Hill, on Facebook, Damaris B. Hill, and on Instagram, Damaris Hill underscore abound woman. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being on the show. And um, I often say if this has helped one person and, it, and the thing it did for me is it, it made me feel empowered um, reading it. And so um, especially women of color, if you want to... Uh, take in reflections of these powerful women in the place they hold in history. Um, check it out. There's a good reason it was nominated for an NAACP image award. So thanks again for being on the show. Thank you so right. much for having me, Toby Jenkins. Show.com. You can find archive shows and additional details about guests of the show at the show's website, www.paradigmradioshow.com. You can follow weekly one-minute insight posts on the show's Instagram and Twitter feed at Paradigm Radio Show. For archived episodes, you can find episodes wherever you subscribe to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify.
Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You is brought to you by Jenkins Professional Services and Hype Media Global. Thank you for tuning into Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You with Toby Jenkins. Join us again.